This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I am reading from my collection of short stories, There is a Season. This story is called The Journeying Boy. The Journeying Boy What past can be yours, O journeying boy, towards a world unknown? Midnight on the Great Western by Thomas Hardy Part 1 Along the grey beach of platform there was a tide of faces, a tide gathering itself before the surge, swollen, tense and very still. He felt how strange the quietness was, until he discerned the mutely frozen faces of the children, the stricken averted eyes of their mothers, the sharp perpendicular of the platform dropped to the shining rails which ran together away from London, to unimaginable strangeness. And approaching now the champing hiss of the train, shunting its coaches slowly, shuddering as it jarred against the buffers. Galvanised by the train's impact, sound and movement stirred within the crowd. Piteous lifted faces were kissed. Paired children, hand-gripping hand, brightly competent gestures and voices marshalled children forward in groupings of ten and twelve, and the waving began. "'Who are you with?' a voice demanded, seeing him alone a slender, taller-than-average boy of perhaps fourteen, holding, as did all the others, the brown small suitcase, the cardboard gas-mask box over the shoulder. Seeing, perhaps, if there was a moment in all that turmoil, the guarded eyes behind the circular spectacles, the black music-case held tightly in the left hand, the creaseless uniform, a crisply new blazer and tie, the grey flannels, the rigid uprightness of the body. I'm all right, thank you. I catch the York train in a few minutes. Too busy to inquire further, she turned away to gather others, briskly kind, a voice made strident by the compulsions of this day. He looked away, knowing that his small trunk was to be loaded into the guard's van, that he must change at York and ask for the platform for the hull line to make his connection. A new school, boarding, not day school now, since schools in the city were scattering their pupils into the country, his previous choral scholarship, a bursary that made his fees possible. For a brief moment he had seen his urgent father, now uniformed as a territorial, telling him to do his best, his mother, always distant, relieved, he sensed, at his departure, of a child she had found herself unable to love. He could not understand or meet her needs, but felt only that he must in some way have deeply disappointed her, this beautiful and elegant woman, who seemed to open like a poppy, full of colour and vivacity for an hour when visitors called. For a moment he felt himself part of the swell of the wordless plangency that rippled now across the crowds of waiting children 
and he felt in his own bowels their weakness and terror. Is it everywhere, he wondered, this herding of the children to safety all across the map of Europe while the grown-ups go to war? He climbed into the carriage, hearing as he did so the conclusive clunk of the doors and stifled, shocked murmurs from the other children seated with him as the whistle blew, and from beneath their feet the turning wheels took them away, past the blur of waving hands, past the strong iron pillars of the station canopy, and then the end of the platform dipped and fell behind, and streets and churches, tenement blocks and factories swarmed into view and vanished in their turn. Holding and twisting his grey and blue school cap, stroking the leather of his music case, he struggled with unexpected tears, aware as he did so that Around him, children younger than he were comforting one another. Older sisters quietly reassuring their brothers and sisters. Older brothers gruffly and fiercely protective. The carriage seemed held in an awed hush, as though to speak above a whisper would break down all the flood defences. Time was subject to the tempo of the wheels and the pace at which they rattled over the points and the junctions of the rails. Strangely, but not really strange, many children soon slept as the exhausting waiting hours and the weight of their distress was gathered and soothed by the rhythm and sway of motion that took them further and further away from their homes. David turned to the window. Indistinct reflections drifted behind his own in the dull grey light a mirage of children that danced and swayed between the telegraph poles. Outside, an insubstantial world that rushed alongside and then fled away. He rested his head against the cold glass, smeared and pocked with soot and weather, and he too slept. When he awoke, they had arrived at Huntingdon, and all along the train children were disembarking holding tightly all that they had of themselves and climbing down to the platform. Here were more adults, with the same strained kindness in their voices, the lists, the groupings, the upturned faces of the children, the hands held. He watched as the train waited, shuffling steam along the platform. At length the guard walked past and the last doors slammed, green flag, whistle, the jolt of brakes released, then coupling screeching over the network of criss-crossing lines and the train urged forward. This time, although he leaned against the window, looking through and beyond the reflection of his carriage into the countryside, flat and green around him, he did not sleep, or, if he did, it was not sleep as he had ever slept before, but a trance of intense wakefulness. He saw beyond the glass a boy, perfectly still, as though he too moved at exactly the same pace, carried forward by a train, but this boy was not facing sideways like himself. This was not a reflection or trick of the light from another part of the carriage, this boy faced outwards towards him, 
staring fixedly at a small point of light, and he was standing, his hands gripping a bar or rail. David could not see what it was, nor make out the blurred figures behind the boy, nor understand how he could see the boy, but not through any glass. For a few minutes they drew exactly level, although there was no parallel set of rails beside the carriage, and the boys watched each other wordlessly, intimately. Then the other train, if train it was, fell back, and the face vanished, leaving only the most distinct impression on his sight, as though in some way etched on his retina. The stations passed. Peterborough, Grantham, Newark, Doncaster, and at each a slow repetition of children departing into exile. And the late September afternoon dimmed into twilight before the train drew into York. He stepped down onto the curving platform, collected his trunk from the guard's van, and sought out a porter and the hull train. He gazed down the sweep of lines back to London, then turned away, but not before he saw again in his mind the boy's watching eyes and experienced a sense of accompaniment, though whether this boy was travelling now or long ago or had yet to begin his journey, he could not tell. He did not feel afraid. He had managed so long on his own that he was not fearful of new places or people, and he had stored up within himself reserves of steadiness that he would never have called courage, but which strengthened him to face unknown situations. So he watched through the window as the lights of stations came towards him, and heard the broad voices call out the names until at last his own station came, and he flung down the window to turn the heavy door-handle outside and felt the air cold and damp, shock him again into wakefulness. Foot school? He nodded. Wait there while I get the trunk, then I'll telephone. Robinson? Yes, sir, a brusque nod in response. You've begun later than the other boys, but that's not surprising in these days. You'll make your way, I expect. I'll introduce you to one or two of your form, and there'll be supper in half an hour. Follow me. Hours and then days passed. New corridors, boys with unfamiliar faces, crowded in classrooms that smelt as all classrooms smell. Gowned masters, the uncertain and cold experience of dormitory, the shrill bells that marked off the lessons, the hours of prep, the time for sleep and waking. Slowly it resolved itself into routines, habits, familiarity, even security. For many days he forgot that strange encounter through the train's window. He settled into a way of life that felt ordered, outside of time, far away from London and any thought of family. There was briefly, predictably, a challenge, an attempt to dominate and frighten a boy perceived as slender, withdrawn, a stranger. He shrugged, laughed, and returned the challenge, and his self-sufficiency caused hesitation and then withdrawal before anyone lost face, and he was free to walk alone. 
He found a place within the music set through the choir and orchestra, then was identified on the rugby field as a fluent and accurate player on the right wing, and that established him in a brotherhood of sweat and mud which asked no questions. Part 2 Before the winter set in, in that first term, he discovered what became for him a more real world. Its spaciousness took him gladly beyond the limits of the school and its routines, even those that he enjoyed and valued. Training for matches led him to run alone, across the countryside, up into the wolds, high above the plain of York, which stretched from the great shining curve of the Humber to the distant towers of the Minster to the north. He ran, seeking the space that gave him the high views, the huge expanse of sky that in that first autumn was coldly blue, fading to silver grey at the margins of sight. Sometimes, as he ran, he heard at his elbow the hoarse, laboured breathing of another runner. After the first jolt of fear, he learned to recognise this strange companionship, and in some curious way to welcome it. He knew without seeing that it was linked to him, as the boy on the train was linked to him. All around him were the signs of a nation preparing itself hastily for war. The town filled with the grey-blue uniforms of young men, and the skies were threaded with the trails of aircraft and the snarl of their engines. Airfields, Pocklington, Driffield, Leckenfield, developed around them. Flattened and concreted runways, low oblong buildings, barbed wire and guarded gateways. Across the flat ground it was the wind and rain that pelted and tore at the frail aeroplanes, their young pilots, the soaked and chilled ground crews. In those early days the busyness seemed unreal, the war very distant, and the school an island of safety that could not be touched. And as the war gathered itself, his life and its routines seemed unchanged. He rarely heard from home, he enjoyed many of his lessons, threw himself into the pleasure of music, joined with other boys in activities that made him accepted and acceptable, even though within himself he felt a separateness that he could not explain to anyone. Sometimes, running, he heard the urgent breathing beside him, and knew himself and his survival to be linked to this stranger. Only at Christmas did the glass dividing the two worlds melt for a moment, and even though he experienced it with great intensity, it made no sense to him. The boys were gathered in the school's chapel for the nine lessons and carols service, in the hush and ceremony. David stood with the choir to sing Unto Us a Boy is Born, enjoying the mounting drama of the unfolding story, the rising crescendo and falling away of the chorus, the stamping chords of the organ. Herod then with fear was filled, a prince, he said, in jury, all the little boys he killed in Bethlehem in his fury. He felt within himself a sense of horror as though he stood at the edge of a terrible cliff. The chorus engulfed him. The floor slid away from him, and he gripped the wood of the choir stall in front of him until the vertigo passed. 
Later, for hours after lights out in the dormitory, he shuddered in remembrance, shivering with cold and terror. Only in the early grey hours of the winter dawn did his exhausted body release him to sleep. The next day was the end of term, and he travelled back to London, expecting, dreading, hoping to see the boy through the train window. He did not know which. When he saw him, it was a very distant glimpse, a moment only. Yet again, it was a moment of timeless duration. Behind the boy, shapeless and crowded figures. Before he could focus, his own carriage swung into Newark Station, and the illusion, if illusion it was, was lost to him. The holiday was a hinterland of experience. His father away in France, his mother frequently out of the house, the servant staff reduced to the cook and a man whom he did not know, and a young woman who came to clean. He struggled to communicate with his mother in response to her queries, but his best moments were alone, reading or listening to the radio. I will be closing the house down while your father is away, his mother told him. I cannot keep the staff, and London is not a safe place to be. I'll be going back to my family in Gloucester. I will make arrangements for your holidays. So he was glad to return to Yorkshire in January, welcoming the journey, the growing confidence of his place at school, and the sense of a parallel life running alongside his own. When he came to look back on those days, he wondered how he had managed to keep the thin meniscus of his inner life from being punctured by what others would call reality. He walked constantly between two worlds, living actively and corporately in one, which was dictated by the external shared activities of time, study, practice, yet the other was becoming more dominant a strongly urgent presence that gazed at him as he travelled, ran alongside him as he sought the solitary pleasure of the wolds. Sometimes he sensed a stumbling and weakening in the running figure beside him, or an unuttered cry in the mouth and eyes of the watching boy. He knew that he was not relating to him in chronological time, that the time-lapses between their encounters were not actual time. Indeed, he sometimes felt that the boy's journey had not yet begun, but that he must be ready to accompany and sustain him. Part 3 Certain landmarks stood out for him as his first year at the school passed, amidst the news of the conquest of the nations of Europe. It was not long before the first news from abroad made war imminent and personal. Hepton in the lower fourth, his older brother dead in Norway. Two boys, who had left the sixth form only last summer, were reported missing. The headmaster, with a weariness that the boys could barely understand, gestured to the honours board above his head and the names of those lost in the Great War seemed to spring into prominence. When his father did not return from Dunkirk, David was not alone in the puzzled grief of the school community. Boys became gentler towards one another, and assembly became a place of commemoration and the slow recital of names lost, wounded, missing. 
old boys were remembered, and their barely younger contemporaries tried to imagine their burning gallantry in the air, as young pilots inscribed the skies with fragile defiance. The school cadet corps drilled on the playing fields, and he became familiar with the slap of his hand against the rifle as he brought it to his shoulder, and the recoil as he learned to aim at the far targets. That summer he spent in Gloucester with his mother's people, and wondered whether his mother grieved or whether he would ever know if his father had family or was mourned by them. He discovered that his father's record collection was left to him, and packed carefully and with great pride a selection to take with him to school. He returned to school with relief, able to enter into those dimensions of his life that felt most real, most significant. The imminence of the war grew ever nearer. The school's second-best pitch was turned over to potatoes, and he took his turn at planting and then harvesting the crop, taking satisfaction in the scent of the cut earth and the rounding of the potatoes gathered in his hands. Masters left to enlist, their places taken by old men returning out of retirement to teach in dusty gowns and with quivering voices that sounded reluctant to emerge from hiding. At night and sometimes in the day, air raid warnings grew in frequency, and the school would clatter down the stone corridors to the outside shelters and wait for the all-clear, sometimes hearing the thumps and feeling the shudders of the earth as nearby airfields were attacked. After dark, for many weeks, David was drawn to the windows facing southeast and saw high above the swell of the wolds the red and orange glow of the terrible fires of Hull under bombardment. The nation waited. Months of losses, of indrawn breath, of horror and expectancy. Younger men, released from service, began to return to teaching, carrying scars of mind as well as body, sardonic and sharp-tongued. Rarely they told stories. The black horror of the Atlantic swell and the oil slicks that burned men before they drowned. The strong pulse of the desert sun. The mountains of Crete and the courage of shepherds and fierce village women. That second summer, ending his year in the lower fifth, marked a turning point for him. He did not, as expected, return to Gloucester, but his mother wrote with an unreal brightness, You'll be pleased to know, my dear David, that after so many, many months grieving for your father, I have been able to make a fresh start. I have begun some very valuable war work, and I have been very fortunate in finding new friends, one of whom I especially hope you will meet one day. I have told him how proud I am of all your achievements. Your father's investments have ensured that there is a trust fund for your schooling and university. Because I am now back in London, but not in the old house, I think it is best if you spend your holidays in a safer place so I've got in touch with your aunt, your father's sister, who lives near Leeds. She will be writing to you and asking you if you would like to spend your summer holiday with her. I'm sure you would like to get to know your father's side of the family. Of course, I would love to see you, but I have so very little time now as I am working, and so I hope this will be a much better arrangement for you. Your loving mother. 
For two or three minutes of quietness, he held the letter carefully in his hand, recognising the careless loops of the consonants and surprised by the faint discernible scent of his mother, released by the envelope. Familiar and evocative, utterly strange and distant. Some weeks later, his aunt wrote to him. My dear David, she began, and he noticed the formal handwriting, so disciplined by the copperplate style of her schooling and so unlike his mother's. I'm very sorry that we have never really met, and you must find it hard to hear from a complete stranger that you are to spend your holidays with me here in Ilkley. I can only say that when we were young, your father and I were very close. It was a great sadness to me to hear of his death and to feel I might never know his son, so I look forward to welcoming you. He sensed a surge of feeling from her and struggled to identify his own response, his privacy, his self-sufficiency, the parallel lines of his inner and outer journey. All those things were too precious to him to be disrupted by an appeal from a stranger. He was wary as he responded. I will meet you at the station ticket barrier in Leeds, she answered him by return, and we will catch the bus. The trains are often slow, but I will wait until you come, so do not be alarmed if the train is very late. He began the holiday with reluctance, amidst many other pupils who found it hard to return to unknown situations. The journey first to York and then to Leeds on slow and frequently stopping trains, frustrated him, and he struggled with unfamiliar anxiety. He looked almost eagerly out of the window to see whether he was to be accompanied westward. Only as the train began to draw into Leeds did he glimpse the boy again, and for moments only. But the focus of the boy's gaze shocked him. If he could, he would have drawn back from a scrutiny so intent and searching. As she had promised, his aunt was waiting beside the ticket collector, a small, beige-costumed woman with a hat set at an angle on her greying hair, and when she stepped forward to shake his hand, he saw that she had brown eyes like his own. As they touched, her hand was dry and strong. He saw that her eyes filled for a moment, but she greeted him gently and quietly. You are David, I could not mistake you. Come with me. Let us find our bus. He was glad of her restraint. During the holiday, she let him find his own way into relationship. Some days he chose to run or walk up into the moors above Ilkley and discover the wildness and rigour of a different landscape. In the evenings, she played the piano, or they listened together to the radio, laughing at the same kind of comedy, appreciating the same music. He felt a sense of homecoming that he had never expected. The days and nights around them were perilous and darkened with air raids and the daily news of horror in Europe. But they found light and comfortableness behind the blackout and in the sharing of simple food. When necessary, they huddled in the Morrison shelter under the dining table and ate bread and cheese and drank cocoa from the thermos that she prepared every evening. Very slowly, he began to ask about his family, the father he hardly knew, the grandparents he did not know at all. 
the reasons why he had never met her. Your father was born in 1902, she told him once, sipping the cocoa carefully and arranging the rug around both of them as they listened to the distant bark of the anti-aircraft shells, the throb of the bombing raid, the stamping thud of bombs in the distance. I was a girl of six when he was born, and our mother died five years later of another pregnancy, I think, although no one would say. Children, you see, were to be seen and not heard in those days, and I was a little mouse of a child and did not ask questions. She looked quickly at him and saw him nod, with his strange gravity of apprehension. So from that time onwards, I looked after my younger brother, and we were very close. Our father was busy all day at the factory, and then the war came and took away our elder brother, and he never came back. Father did well in the war, making boots for the army as well as shoes, but his eldest son's death took away the meaning of it all, and he became an angry, unapproachable man, old long before his time. It took away, too, the young man I might have married, yes, though you'd never think it now. She shook her head and smiled quickly at him. He touched her hand, briefly. But no one noticed that, and after the war my work was to look after my father and run his household, and your father left home as soon as he could and went to London. He did not quarrel with father, but they were distant, and only the business would bring them together. So when my father, your grandfather David, died in 1923, I was left enough to buy a small house, as you see, and the business went to your father. He closed down the factory in the north and began life in London and married, and we drifted away from one another. Your father moved in very different circles. I gave piano lessons and worked as a receptionist for the doctor. I still do. We had very little in common, your father and his wife and I. I saw you once as a baby. But that was long ago. She fell silent. And it is all happening again, she said, with an indrawn breath, and to herself rather than to him, the women and the children waiting for the men who may never come back. You have been listening to the first instalment of The Journeying Boy. From the book There is a Season... Read by the author Janet Killeen and produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>